Tarkin is is arguably an aberration. Like you know, he's he's the he's uh, oh, who's the Secretary of Defense who we kicked at, or the advisor, whatever. You know, he's he's like a rogue general who's like a little bit harsher than Bannon. Darth Vader is uh, just a sadistic, uh, I guess, a religious extremist as well that kills. Prisoners. I I just really hate to see you maligning people with severe mental illnesses and uh, PTSD <laughs> here, Stephen. I'm Touché. I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> so so like Darth Vader is something like what Franklin Graham. <laughs> oh my god, that's actually the best. <laughs> May the fourth be with you. With your spirit. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. And a very special episode it is, uh, May the 4th, Star Wars themed. Uh, I'm Brevin. Steven. I'm Sam. And your guest today, Jensen. Featuring Jensen for the very first time. We're very excited to have you. Uh, Jensen, I know you've been a longtime fan. You've listened to every single episode. You've just been dying. You've, in fact, been bribing me. You've been sending anonymous gifts to my house. I know it's been you asking to be on the show. Uh, How does it feel to finally make it to the top? It's a dream come true. Honestly, uh, I feel like tomorrow will be infinitely worse than today. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to ride the highs and uh, I'll deal with the lows tomorrow. I I assume it'll send me into a spiraling depression, but... uh, you know, you just got to deal with it. You know, I mean, you life is really just a whole bunch of episodes of depression punctuated with small bursts of joy. Um, much like our Star Wars experience. Much like the Star Wars experience. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so here we are. Uh, it's May the 4th. It's Star Wars time. And I know on the last pod, uh, we all gave our reviews of the trailer. I gave it one star. Uh, Sam and Steven, what did you guys rate it? I think four stars. Piece, I think I said I four say. as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we have one person here who hasn't reviewed it. Uh, Jensen, what did you think of the Star Wars trailer? I am slightly ashamed to say that I'm now fairly hyped for the movie. Granted, it's a very cautious hype due to the, um, I'll say, like half of an abomination that was The Last Jedi. Um, but, I, I mean, bringing back the Emperor, one of the most iconic villains, I think. And he's very mysterious. Of course, you have the Death Star. What's that going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of cool, so, a lot of questions, a lot of questions, and it, it's, it'll just be up to JJ and that everybody to see how well they answer them and leave us with a satisfying conclusion to the Star Wars uh, Skywalker saga. JJ, JJ Abrams is going to be directing this. Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's oh. back at the helm. Rian Johnson is. Uh, Rian Johnson is space dust. Thank God. Not really. He's actually he's actually currently developing um, a Star Wars. TV show or no other separate trilogy with the people who uh, Weiss and the other guy that made uh, Game of Thrones. So we'll see how well that goes. Hmm. So honestly, I, we'll have to get into this later. But I think he did have some positive things in a it's just too much negative. But we'll get into that later. We'll footnote that. There's a very strong uh, Straussian interpretation of Episode Eight. Um, but real quick, Jensen, just to fulfill the format here, I'm going to need you to give it uh, stars out of five, and then um, one hot take about what's going to be in the next movie. Uh, I'll say solid three stars out of five. Um, I, nothing too spectacular. I feel like they're playing a trump card with the Emperor, you know? And everybody's got to be questioning. Even, even people who hated the last movie have to be like, okay, what's going to go happen, you know? And as for the hot take, hmm, 
I'm going to say that Ray is going to have a different colored lightsaber by the end of the film. That's my hot take. Nice. I like it. I like it. And I certainly hope that's correct. I really hope that's accurate. So we'll yeah. see. Yep. All right. So to move us along to the next segment, uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? So I'm drinking, um, you know, I don't actually know what it is. It's a dangerous a, It's like this um, mango fruit smoothie thing that came in on Odwalla bottle. I found it in the fridge and it looked kind of good and it is good. So that's what we're drinking right now. Okay. Uh, Steven. I am drinking a, uh, a bit of bourbon, uh, 1792. Unfortunately, that's the brand, not the year it was made. Although I'm not sure if at that point the age would actually kind of inverse and make it terrible. So maybe I should be grateful for that. But in any case, some 1792 bourbon. It is uh, past fast season and I can have bourbon now. Glory be. Uh, Jensen, mm. how about yourself? Phenomenal. Got a ice glass of Arizona iced tea. Mm. Mm. And uh, as for myself, I'm having the uh, drink I invented on this show, actually, the Minty Scotsman. Um, so it's some <laughs> scotch ice sugar in the bottom. Basically a mint julep, although my mint leaves are like very, very withered because they've been in the fridge forever and I never use them. But um, <laughs> That just makes it better. Yeah, it makes it better. Um, it's, you know, I feel like... Uh, um, William the Bruce, and you know I'm hiding out in my peat cave, and I don't, I, I don't know, thinking bad vibes towards the British. I guess um, I think that's what he did, right? Painting your face blue and whatnot. Yep. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Oh, 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 I'm curious. So this minty Scotsman, you say, has it gotten to the point that you're unironically enjoying this? Because yes, I'm still it's a little thrown okay. off by mint and scotch. Well, so so here's the the thing. This is the Trader Joe's brand scotch. So it the peat level is not off the charts like it is with that uh, scotch that you gave us that one time. Uh, okay. So I I can easily imagine a world in which you have scotch that like good scotch, unlike the scotch that I have that has a high peat you know content, and then it's like dirt and mint, and that does not sound like a great combination. That um, would be less than ideal. Yeah, you just want the dirt by itself, and in, in that case. Oh, um, in that case, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. It's 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 like uh, going to Scotland, and it's like, oh, look at the rolling green fields, and you just stick your face into the side of the hill and start eating a chunk of sod. That's basically you are scotch. grateful for that chunk of sod. Mm-hmm. 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 We pay a lot of money for that chunk of uh, chunks of sod. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the uh, to the main event. Uh, Sam. Yeah. What what Star Wars themed extravaganza have you brought us? Well, I I found an old favorite. Um, It was from 2012 uh, during the Obama administration. A group of people got together and wrote a petition that the United States government should fund the construction of a Death Star by 2016. And presumably the same crowd um, after the 2016 election would have probably turned the Death Star back on the Earth. But they basically just said it would create um, jobs and uh, space superiority, national defense, as well as make leaps and bounds in our engineering and space exploration technology. Is this not what Reagan proposed back in like the 80s with the Star Wars program? Or is well, it, am I confusing two things? It's basically the same thing. Actually, it's the exact same thing. So I don't know exactly what kind of people did propose this, but it got 34,000 signatures. Um, 34,000 people thought this was actually a good idea, which isn't that many people in comparison to the population of the United States, but that's still a lot of people who think it's actually a good idea to build a Death Star. Um, There's so many signatures that it actually warranted an official response from the Obama administration, and they wrote a full response letter about why it would be a bad idea. 
Um, and there are three reasons were that it would cost an estimated of 850 quadrillion dollars. And then they said that that's just going to you know, not reduce our deficit. It'll expand it. So that's bad. They also stated the administration does not support blowing up planets. That's good. And that it would be irresponsible to spend countless taxpayer dollars on a Death Star that can be destroyed by a one-man starship. Now, this is an official response from the administration to this petition. Um, and they spent the rest of the time talking about how awesome NASA is and stuff like that. I guess there's not a huge point to this, except that it's just a very entertaining concept that the Obama administration actually responded to that petition, and that so many people think this is a good idea. Um, they actually linked to a different study that was done by a group of uh, students at, um, what university were these guys at? Oh, at, at uh, Lehigh University. And these, this, these students basically wrote broke down exactly the cost of building a Death Star and how much money it would take, how long it would take to build. Um, and there's this full report about that, which is quite entertaining to read. They basically scale up a battleship by something on, uh, by 10 to the 15 power. So. That's fantastic. That's, yeah. that's amazing. And the amount, so this is the amount of work that people are putting into calculating how we could build a Death Star is great. Um, also, this article talks about how we the the biggest issue would probably be our steel amounts is getting enough steel from the earth to construct a death star and they actually worked out that with all the steel on and inside the earth we could build 13,000 death stars that's actually awesome really? that, it is see that surprises um, me yeah well because the core of the earth is made of iron and so if you pull that out that's quite a few i mean you could just blow up like once you built one then you could blow, just blow up. up the earth and get the rest yes and- yeah, exactly. I think this may be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think actually in in the extending universe, the books, uh, the propaganda films of um, the Emperor uh, maintained that the Death Star was only used in mining operations. They would blow up uninhabited planets to uh, to mine the uh, the ore. Huh, I didn't know that. That's, I didn't know that's yeah. wrong. Yeah, who's you to know? say that's wrong? Um, I mean, the I film mean, A New Hope could have been entirely staged by the so-called rebellion. <laughs> yeah. How did Leia know it was actually Alderaan? That's hold on. Question. Yeah, we're we're we're, <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're get ourselves here. <laughs> robust defense of the Empire, but um, I I I have several thoughts here on this uh, um, building of the Death Star edition because I think it's um you know especially relevant to our modern situation. Um, first you have you know thirty two thousand people, ironically, unironically signing this thing. Um, which you might say sort of twenty when was this twenty fourteen. 2012, like 2012 to to 2016, I think is really the moment where you saw the internet's brain just melt down to where memes are what they are now. Just like utterly, this petition was right on the leading edge of it. It was published about a week after Obama was elected for his second term. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is that this this was just like a massive uh, harbin harbinger harbinger whatever harbinger of what was to come of the internet in the future years where just like the only language that people can speak in is heavy irony that is also truth because we you know do wish collective destruction on ourselves the second thing first you would have something to say about that i would say yep the the second thing is um this is obviously very um Creatable. I mean, we have all these Green New Deal proposals that have brought to the fore a very interesting um, economic theory called modern monetary theory, which basically means you can print money infinitely without uh, 
decreasing its value and there's like no reason to not print tons and tons of money. So I I, I think uh, both the now in 2019, the internet's hive mind is sufficiently melted and we have the economic backing that this is a very viable project. Well, we have one problem. Do we? One big problem. Um, that's the rate of steel production. We only produce about thir- 1.3 billion tons annually. Um, think worldwide. Yeah, so, worldwide. So what you're saying is this is bipartisan because it will revive the Rust Belt. That's what I no, heard. What, what I'm what saying is said. that it will take 833,000 years to produce enough steel just to begin working on our first one. How many years did you say? <laughs> <laughs> We better get started, is what I'm hearing. If we ever want to see this play, insert sad <laughs> no, Star no, no, no. Wars. Here, here's here's how it, here's how it, here's how it goes down. Okay, obviously it happened at some point because Star Wars take place a long, long time ago. So there's gonna be a time machine, and with it's that time a- machine, <laughs> we're gonna send all the steel from the future back to the past. <laughs> 33,000 years back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the steel is going to be... It's like Looper, where they send the, they kill people in the past, mm. but it's going to be steel, and they just send it back so they can build a Death Star. No, this is just endgame. We just need to shrink people down and time travel, blah, blah, blah. Spoilers. Spoilers. Whoa, uh, spoilers. <laughs> whoa, whoa. That was... Oh, dude. Have you, you guys not seen, seen Endgame? No, no, we've seen it. We've okay, seen we've it. all seen Endgame. Our, our listeners, listeners, if you haven't seen Endgame by now, it. that's on you. That's not on us. I'm going to no. maintain that. The, 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 the directors of the movie on Monday said that the block on spoilers is officially over. You no, it's over next month, this Monday. No, what? what? Tomorrow? Oh, it's over or, already. Yeah, no, yeah. It's Sunday was, for the record. Sunday. It was over after they made one point two billion dollars in a weekend. That Jeez. was at night. Whack. It was one point two. I thought it was one point four. Actually, it. That's what it is now. They're on. They're maybe on track to. Being the highest grossing movie of all time. Do you know that their their marketing budget alone was $150 million? That seems small to me, honestly. I didn't even see ads for it. I, I saw like one poster near where I work, but like I, I feel like it, people just knew. It's like this implicit knowledge in the entire culture because we've been waiting for this moment for 11 years. Have it so well trained. They just say, "Yep, there's a new Marvel movie," and we begrudgingly go. Like, I'm not even excited no, no, about no, these no, anymore. No. I just, I just no, drag myself. No, 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 no. Okay, here, are you all still in there? No. Here's the difference. Here's the difference between like a new Marvel movie come out and a new DC movie coming out. Okay, Marvel has consistently pumped out at least a good product. It's not great all the time. Nobody can say it's great all the time. You look at Thor: The Definitely Dark World, the classic you know, one, right? High end cinema. Right, but like they're always entertaining every time, and and with and they and they have likable characters, and they're all very well cast. And the biggest the biggest reason I think with the new ones, especially all the Avengers movies, really, is that you basically have characters from different directors on completely different like genres of film. You know, you have like buddy cop type Captain Marvel movie. You have improv comedy, which is Thor Ragnarok. You have like heist movie, which is Ant Man, and they all mesh together in the same movie. And yet they still feel true to their characters. They're still likable to, and they, and they interact with each other with such chemistry. So I think that that is like the the true testament to like the Marvel Cinematic Universe success is is the way that they all work together. So I'm I, I'm going to cut this uh, short because I'm oh yeah it's I'm hearing that we need a a maybe a problem a with game. An episode <laughs> a problem with Marvel <laughs> yeah the problem with Marvel we can list um, the problem with uh, superhero genres in general yeah I the the yes yeah, the we only are very comment. Off-topic. 
that I will make is that um, one way to view the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe is actually not as a bunch of movies that they've managed to mesh together, but as a TV show. World's most expensive TV show, yeah. Yep, yep, world's most expensive TV show. Okay. Um, All right, well, I think given that we've diverted from Sam's, I think we're done with that. Uh, Steven, I believe you have your own Star Wars thematic uh, journey to, to take us on. I do indeed. And mine is uh, my favorite fan theory in the Star Wars universe, uh, that Jar Jar is actually, instead of this goofy, kind of creepy... Racist. uh, Racist uh, comic relief, he's actually the most insidious character that has ever come about in the Star Wars universe. Um, He is a Sith Lord, and he is in fact the one pulling all the puppet strings. And I like this, not only does it have a goodly amount of explanatory power, but it also redeems what is arguably the worst part about all of the prequels. Uh, More on that later, but right now let's get into the theory itself. Uh, First, it's observed that Jar Jar casually demonstrates incredible martial prowess. Uh, One of the first things we see in uh, episode one, one of the first things we see with Jar Jar, is him casually performing a 20-foot leap into a lake. Not only do the Jedi in his presence casually ignore this, but we the audience do as well. Any other character demonstrating this sort of martial prowess would be met with extreme shock and skepticism. We would just assume they're a force user, not Jar Jar, whose goofy demeanor has already preempted such thoughts. Uh, This is bordering on a force jump. The only beings we've encountered thus far that could pull something uh, uh, like this off only do so through the power of the force. And this remains true throughout the rest of the Star Wars universe. Episodes 1, 2, and 3, 7, and 8, Rogue One, Solo... No one has ever really been able to pull something like that off, except for uh, Jedi or Sith. Gungans never uh, display this sort of power uh, outside of Jar Jar. Uh, Throughout the entire Battle of Naboo, he not only survives, but he shreds droids left and right with a blaster attached to his foot. Uh, The author of this theory argues that he's employing a style of drunken boxing, which is a well-known martial arts technique, and one that, that, given the Star Wars universe's relationship to Eastern mysticism, George Lucas would presumably be familiar with. Uh, after this, Jar Jar's overall demeanor is broken down. It's argued that it's not coincidental that Jar Jar rose to power so quickly, that he's constantly doing a force persuasion whenever he's promoted, first a general, then senator, then when he's convincing the entire Senate to elevate Palpatine to Supreme Chancellor. Um, if you break down the scenes, you can see that he's subtly waving his hands. No one suspects him, not even the Jedi, not even the audience, because his entire demeanor disarms us. Another scene, this one during the rescue uh, sequence in Naboo, is examined and it's argues that and it's argued that Jar Jar is performing a force leap off screen. Um, It's also noted that Jar Jar and Palpatine are from the same planet, and it's noted that this planet likely has some dark side influence, uh, this planet being Naboo. Uh, Given the strange statues of the the Gungans, uh, it also would provide some explanatory power as to why the Gungans are so determined to get rid of him. And on a meta note, he examines Lucas's method of filming, noting that, quote, One of Lucas's big deals with the prequels was that they were intended to rhyme and mirror the original trilogy in terms of general narrative themes. So there should have been some seemingly innocent creature found on the side of the road that later reveals himself to be a major player. We do have a creature that seems to be, uh, or sorry, we do have a creature that this seems to be uh, describing precisely, Jar Jar, but of course never developed into a master anything, end quote. He follows this by noting that Dooku is such a flat character that appears to be shoehorned in, using this to argue that Lucas chickened out when reviews of episode one were so bad in no small part due to Jar Jar. It could have been that quite a compelling villain, uh, a lesson in never underestimating the cunning of the Sith, that not all manipulation is done through shadowing means, but sometimes it's right under your nose. Uh, So in this case, Jar Jar would have mirrored Yoda in episode five. Um, And I suppose one of the main thing 
the main reason I like this theory is that it attempts to redeem the worst character in all of Star Wars franchise. Does this theory work? Doubtful. Watching the prequels, even with this idea in mind, it strikes me that it's pretty close to what most conspiracy theories are, taking a small amount of evidence and stretching it to a breaking point. Nonetheless, it's a compelling idea that this weird, creepy, cartoonish character is actually a very intentional choice made by Lucas and not a cynical attempt to marketing to children in order to increase merchandising. And truthfully, if Disney did decide to implement it and make it so that, as the theorists argue, Jar Jar is actually Supreme Leader Snoke, well, I can't say I would be all that upset over it. It would be at least an attempt at redeeming the the prequels. So I, I really like this theory. I think it's both hilarious. It's well argued. Honestly, the guy does a very good job breaking it all down. I don't think it ultimately holds any water, but I do very much like the idea of Jar Jar as this insidious counterpart to master yoda that it is ultimately a lesson in not taking anything for granted and not reading a book by its cover or not judging a book by its cover rather i think that uh, that theory alone demonstrates the power of the human spirit to actually win by not fighting what we hate and saving what we love what we love being the star wars franchise and what we hate being jar jar as a character well said well said i'm snapping um because that was poetic <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the the Jar Jar as a Sith theory is um one of the more venerable of the uh, Star Wars conspiracies. Actually, I had a question about this. Jensen, Star Spiracies? Oh, okay. S- yeah, Star Spiracies. Um, you've seen a lot of the Clone Wars, if not all of them. Is there anything in though in that TV show that might lend support for this theory? Uh, Jar Jar's abilities, I'll say yes. He does more Jedi-like things, and there's like a specific episode where he gets mistaken for a Jedi by doing like you know that sort of leap and sneaking around and basically having a cloak on. Anyway, and and so that's like a whole plot of an episode. However, he does he's like working for the good side the whole time, and he's you know goodie friends with all the good characters, which I guess you could attribute which to Palpatine his... is too. Palpatine is too right, but like even in <laughs> even in that show, he just looks like a you know bad guy that was one of the poorer episodes if i recall correctly uh, yeah i mean i'm not saying it was a good episode but yeah i i don't know i i could i couldn't say either way i guess you, you could argue either way if you if you really wanted to i don't think there's anything like particularly uh you know that would confirm or deny the theory uh in my recollection at least that's one of the worst things about a lot of conspiracy theories is that they're inherently unprovable it's like the, the so, confirmation bias problem. yeah exactly yeah well, uh, um, for for my uh, article, um, this is not a conspiracy. Uh, requires no confirmation bias to believe it, and is probably one of the uh, most important things we need to think about when viewing um, the Star Wars universe um, because it changes everything, and it's very very important. Um, so I'm using a very uh, old and famous article called. The Case for the Empire, written by Jonathan V. Last, uh, was published in the Weekly Standard um, and is sort of j- the jumping off point for, for my theory. Uh, the Weekly is, Standard, rest the in peace. Standard, rip, yeah, rest in peace. Um, and my sort of overall universe of theory is, is, uh, is uh, the Empire did nothing wrong. Um, and now just to clarify, only extremely tanky interpretations of this actually mean that in the fullest sense, the Empire did zero things wrong um but what it does mean uh in a um nuanced sense that the traditional dichotomy of the rebels good and empire bad that the movie present are uh, more complicated and flipped if you actually think about it um so just to sort of lead off there's a little bit of interesting sociology around star wars about this and so just as a 
as a warning to our listeners and to uh, and to our uh, fellow hosts here, I will be talking about Star Wars in multiple potential universes since we have multiple canons that we're dealing with. Um, but the great thing is this theory holds up in all of them. Um, so that's that's pretty neat. Um, so, but we do need to keep those straight because uh, the Empire did do nothing wrong in any of them. Um, but the justifications are different depending on which one you're talking about. Um, so, for the politics of Star Wars, I I, I actually did research for this, guys. Um, so uh, hang in there. Um, so back in the uh, good old '80s, uh, George Lucas used to be a radical leftist hippie type, um, and probably still is. So, for example, if you didn't know this, the Ewoks beating the stormtroopers was a, was a metaphor for the Viet Cong beating. Uh, the U.S. Army, um, the Empire was the U.S. Obviously, with something something Cold War politics. Um, the first few Star Wars movies, in other words, the original trilogy, and then the, and then the prequels eventually were the word of God. So what Lucas said the theme was was how democracies turn into dictatorships, and it was basically because Lucas was afraid of Nixon. So like all of like Palpatine is is Nixon. That is that is George Lucas's brain, um, which is great. Uh, so that's who's making these movies. So that colors everything. Um, the next sociological point is that different people have liked different parties in the movies at different times. So like in the early 2000s, the fusionist wing of the Republicans, so like the libertarian conservative crowd, and like who would always have both in their titles, um, were all about the rebels because the empire was big government. So that was all bad, you know. Um, but now it's switched because now the Ray is Mary Sue of the resistance, which doesn't have a mirror image in our political discourse at all, um, even though that's waned a little bit. And uh, the empire is the Republicans, obviously, and fascism, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. So, But the area that I'm going to look at specifically is uh, this great right-wing neoconish Twitter meme of the empire did nothing wrong, and it's not necessarily irony with that. So first off, this is a quote from Sonny Bunch, a film critic over at the, uh, at the um, Washington Beacon, I think it is, um, a quote. On one side of the ledger, you have a meritocratic force for order and stability led by a more or less benevolent dictatorship that seeks to maintain galactic unity, facilitate trade, and head off nasty intergalactic conflict before too many people can die. On the other, you have a band of religious terrorists whose leaders include a drug smuggler in the pocket of slavers and a pair of incestuous twins working to restore a broken republic held hostage by special <laughs> interests that tolerated its citizens being treated as chattel, end quote. And that kind of sets off the, the whole picture here of uh, the Empire did nothing wrong. So uh, J.B. Last makes his argument um, going on a couple different points. And the first is he – so he wrote this uh, before Attack of the Clones came out. So just bear in mind the, the, there's a bit of a knowledge problem. So this is based on episode one, the original trilogy, and then um, with no knowledge of what the uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith were going to be. So there were problems with the Galactic Republic that are really obvious. They can't protect their members. They can't stop infighting. The Jedi are dumb. He makes it into an inherited genetic trait with the midichlorian stuff. So the Jedi aren't a democratic militia. They're just like a Swiss guard. Um, Count Dooku, whatever his intentions, are leading a separatist movement that want to have smaller government, free trade, blah, blah, blah. But but the Republic's like, no, man. So they deploy their religious extremists uh, to go take them out. That's obviously not kosher. So now, what is the empire in contrast to this terrible, terrible uh, galactic republic? He says, quote, Make no mistake, as emperor, Palpatine is a dictator, but a relatively benign one, like Pinochet. It's a dictatorship people can do business with. They collect taxes and patrol the skies. They stop organized crime in the form of the smuggling rings, 
run by the Huts. The empire has virtually no effect on the daily life of average law-abiding citizens, end quote. And we can see this especially because the movies all take place in the Outer Rim, where there's it's, it's not in populous areas. It's That's where the, that's where the actual rebels are, because everyone else is, is, is doing just fine. And unlike the Divine Right Jedi, the Empire is a meritocracy. And, you know, people will, will, will bring up all these objections to what the Empire did, like, you know, Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen. Oh, no, they die. That's very sad. Um, but they only get killed after they aid the rebellion by hiding Luke and harboring fugitive droids. They aren't given due process, but they are traitors. They would have been convicted and killed anyway. The main thing that people bring up is the destruction of Alderaan. It's like the evilness of the Empire and its planet side. Oh no, it's it's evil. And uh, Leia's like, Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. And that's important, but only if it's true. However, at that point in the movies, there's no reason to believe that Leia is telling the truth. Up to that point, everything that she said is a lie. She's, she's lied about every single thing. She's lied about being a spy. She's trying to deliver schematics of, you know, of a... Of a, of a military base, basically. Um, we wouldn't look too kindly on that today. Um, and the other stupid thing is when people talk about destroying Alderaan, they talk about it as a genocide, which is blatantly just, you know, poor argumentation. It's 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 gaslighting, frankly, because Alderaan is one planet where humans live, and there are humans on numerous planets. So at worst, it's like sacking a city. You know, uh, it's not a genocide by any means. If they blew up Kashyyyk, for example and killed, you know, the home planet of the Wookiees, which are a distinct race, then you, then you might be able to call it a, a genocide, but they didn't. So it's basically just like blowing up a city, which is fine. We do that all the time. Um, it's really kind of just like drone striking a wedding by accident when you think about it. So uh, the movies never really give any reasons why the Empire is worse than the Republic, because it's all kind of like high-level conflicts. It's like the Jedi think that the Emperor with his, I don't know, like, you know, they're all... Um, I don't know. It, you know, it, it's religious warfare. They have high-level disagreements about doctrine, and they're willing to kill for it. And there's just no objective evidence that the Empire was evil. It's, you know, it's, it has meritocracy. It has upward mobility. The anti-non-human uh, anti, um, thing is troubling. Um, but the Rebellion only had, you know, sort of tokenism at best. They had just a couple aliens. It wasn't really that much different from the Empire, you know, mostly white males. And if you get into the EU, then you have things like Grand Admiral Thrawn, who is a very famous and high up uh, non-human in the um, in the Empire. So basically, it, it, it's just this. Watch The Phantom Menace again and note that under the Republic, the criminal huts are openly running Tatooine. There's slavery everywhere. Then watch the, the original trilogy and there's no slavery. Jabba is in his cave. He's been reduced to a fraction of what he was on, on Tatooine. And on that basis, just for the average person, what do you think benefited the average um, inhabitant more, the Empire or the Republic? Uh, and before I go into the um, multiple canon possibilities, um, I just want to get some uh, reactions from you all. That's why episode five is the best Star Wars movie. It's true. It's true. The Emperor finally wins. <laughs> I, I would like to note that Lucas did go from hippie to cynical sellout uh, between the original trilogy and the prequels. Um, that most of uh, the prequels were bent around instead of political messages or what have you. They were mainly designed to, to sell uh, merchandising. Uh, so I, I am intrigued by that. The movie is a political message. It's like talking. The whole... I, I, I don't oh, know if I agree with that. There's one. so many politics. In, you don't in sell action figures but... on one and a half hours of people walking around in robes and saying, walking Ooh, and Senator. 
fucking <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the Lego line of battle droids begs to differ. But that, that's besides the point. I would be intrigued. Uh, I, I need you to go more into the anti-alien policies because you mentioned Admiral Thrawn, but he was very, very humanoid. Um, pretty much the only difference between uh, humans and the Chiss are blue skin and the Chiss are way more intelligent. Uh, almost all alien. Okay, almost all aliens in the Star Wars universe are humanoid. They're almost all bipedal. I mean, and and in addition, this is sort of like a outside the movies argument as well, to which there are exceptions to this. Um, so just just like within the movies, there's no mention of this. It's only just implied because you don't see aliens with the Empire, but you see like two aliens with the Rebellion. Um, but it it was never like a a huge point in the movies. To, to which I will say, Kashyyyk was a slave planet under the Empire, um, and there was a fairly serious anti-alien uh, policy. Again, like, a few exceptions, such as Admiral Thrawn, I'll totally grant you that, but for the most part, um, slavery, slavery actually flourished under the Empire. It was just all you were a slave to the Empire, not really, and they allowed, they, they allowed the Huts some amount of self-sustaining except when they got out of line in which case they would you know completely wipe them out or what have you but i am interested what are you going to do with the the fact that uh slavery was actually a very common practice because i'm i'm not buying for a moment that slavery wasn't a common practice from the empire the books clearly state that it was so so on the on the first point um we have to argue in multiple universes so the first universe that i'm arguing in is the movies without a ton of extended lore very minimal um here so in the movies i think all these arguments that i've made so far hold up so now the main the once you get to the extended canon, so the old canon, um, now referred to as as the legends, um, in other words, the best Star Wars and er, er, yeah. Anyway, um, so in this uh, segment, the the argument for the Empire changes. It's different because you have a lot of you have a lot of uh, information, and from this, it transitions from the Empire just being obviously better in the movies to being the Empire was a specific creation of Sidious to combat the Utes and Vong. Um, uh, I was who, wondering if that was going to come up. Yep. Who, who as uh, readers of uh, the Star Wars uh, Extended Universe know, are a extra galactic force that invade, basically wipe out um, half of the entire population of the galaxy. They rely on different technology. They very anti-Jedi, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's a whole separate argument of the Empire did nothing wrong based on this. Um, and because there's evidence to think that Palpatine knew that the Utes and Vong were preparing an invasion, because that the Chiss knew about them, um, and the Empire knew via the Chiss, and this was known 27 years before the Battle of Yavin. And so, with In Outbound Flight, which is a great novel, highly recommend the the purpose of stopping that expedition was to prevent making contact with the Utes and Vong too early, because that would have been very dangerous to alert the Utes and Vong that they could invade the galaxy. So. Literally everything that the Empire did, according to the old EU, um, was meant to oppose the Vong. So, like, their super weapons, from the Death Star to the Galaxy Gun, would have been extremely valuable when you have people who are flying around in planet-sized colony ships. And then with a giant Starfleet, vast vast military, you would have an armed force that actually could potentially defeat the Yudzin Vong. And in Palpatine's eyes, the Republic was completely ineffective in fighting this these invaders. It had no army. It had the Jedi, who were you know a bunch of idiots. The bureaucracy was corrupt. You basically had a an ineffective bureaucracy and a small army of monks who would kill him on sight if he revealed himself to be a Sith Lord. So no matter what justification he tried to make, so sure Palpatine drew his power from the dark side, but he was also 
the latest in a very long line of Dark Lords that start to rule the galaxy from the shadows. And while he did a lot of things that were bad, his real goal was really just the survival of all sentient life in the galaxy. And he was willing to sacrifice certain freedoms for this pragmatic goal. He was the purest of utilitarians because he was willing to compromise himself and Mm -hmm. fully submit to the dark side because he knew that it was the strongest force that could repel them. And he knew the light side wasn't enough. All that while looking like a melted candle. I I would simply say that if he had made this threat well known, then maybe everyone could have put aside their differences. There are very well real life uh, instances where I think, for example, the Mexican government has a deal with the cartels that if ever there's an invasion, they will put aside their differences and work together. That's fascinating. I've never heard of that. Why wouldn't the empire do something like that where kind of send out a diplomat to the rebels and say like, look, I know that you have issues with us. We have issues with you. Why don't we prepare for this massive incoming fleet though? Because the rebellion was always considered insignificant. They were never a a partner to be um, like parlayed with. Yeah, so the Empire just saw them as, I mean, it's, it's especially evident in, like, Rogue One and uh, A New Hope, where they're, you know, th- these rebels pop up and they're like, okay, let's just deal with this annoyance, and then the rebels end up doing something real huge. Um, and by, by the time that they've actually realized the rebels are a real threat after Battle of Yavin, which is really their first major victory. That, that, um, yeah, I think it actually in the title crawl of four, they said that um, in essence, Rogue One or the the series of events leading up to Rogue One, um, that that was the first main victory that the Rebel Alliance had scored oh, was getting on, those planets on what Scarif. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so at that point, they're past the the point of negotiation because now they have the plans to destroy the weapon. I, I don't know. Like, I guess they're just as big of a threat as well, the. To which, to which I would say, like in that case, knowing what's at stake, at least some amount of diplomacy could have been initiated with Darth Vader capturing Leia and saying, like, "Look, you don't understand what's going on here. Like, clearly, you've done some stuff. I'm gonna, exp- I'm gonna level with you and explain exactly what's going on." And instead, he force cho- force chokes a bunch of her uh, her people, tortures her to death, blows up her home planet, and then is shocked when the Rebel Alliance doesn't want to part life. The, the analogous situation here is you capture Osama bin Laden and you're like, hey, Osama, climate change is a problem. So if you would, it's like far off and distant, but if you would really stop blowing things up, maybe we could work together. That is literally <laughs> the analogous situation here. Or uh, I would say not climate, an alien invasion is going to come 20 and, years from now. Yes, and, and Osama bin Laden has the nuclear launch codes. Like, no, your scenario is wrong. I'll grant you that. I remain skeptical on one thing, and that's that the Empire knew how big the Yuuzhan Vong force were. I don't think that's the point. I don't don't think that's the point of that theory at all. I think the point of the theory is that the Emperor takes a look at the Republic, even governs the entire galaxy for a spell, and sees that it's vastly under-equipped to deal with any kind of threat, regardless of where or what it comes from, right? So he was like, okay, we need a standing army. They make a standing army, establish some martial law, uh, put governors in all the you know em- em- empire governors rather than letting planets govern themselves. There still is a senate in uh, the in regional the governors shall have direct control over right. The and it, it's only it's only until a new hope when they actually get the Death Star plans that they even transition into their kind of martial law lockdown phase that uh, that that you see in the rest of the movies. Yeah. So uh, up until up until that, that point, kind of corruption spreading throughout what was maybe a relatively benign rule. Which, I mean, I mean, uh, you could argue Tarkin that Tarkin is is arguably 
an aberration. Like, you know, he's, he's the, he's, uh, oh, who's the secretary of defense who we kicked at, or the advisor, whatever, you know, he's, he's like a rogue general. Who's like a little bit harsher than Bannon. <laughs> Darth Vader. <laughs> Grand and Darth, Darth Vader is uh, just a sadistic, uh, I guess, a religious extremist as well that kills. Christians. I I just really hate to see you maligning people with severe mental illnesses and um, PTSD here, Stephen. I'm I'm very disappointed in you. So so like Darth Vader is something like what Franklin Graham. <laughs> Oh my god, that's actually the best. <laughs> can, like, can we I'm all sorry, really agree that the Empire's biggest downfall is a lack of protag armor? Because you have all these names in the Rebellion, where they can't die, of course, they have you know stories and lives to live out, and, uh, and the Empire is just a bunch of helmets. And I think if they let the, They're honestly... their, their guys a little more face time, they would... Yeah, a whole lot better time the empire is honestly too meritocratic for their own good. They're like too equitable to all of their people. <laughs> That's so true. Where, so whereas true. the rebellion's like, oh hey, you're you're a smuggler who who smuggles drugs to people that they get addicted and die on, and you're in the pay of slavery. and you're in debt, and you're in a, debt to a no, crime you're, lord. You're the hero now. Somehow it's like, no, this is have stupid. a medal. Have a medal. <laughs> God, because he he he. Destroyed one ship in the whole battle. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Good. Job. All right. Um, I think uh, let's let's transition here. Um, it's very obvious that the Empire did nothing wrong. So let's move on to Jensen's uh, thing here. I'm actually going to pivot. I just changed my mind on what theory I want to talk about. Uh, All right. Whoa. So yeah, big Dramatic. shock. Yeah. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, a scene we're all very familiar with. Uh, of those of us Star Wars fans, I know we've all seen it. We've all thought deeply on it. And this is the legendary and incredibly deep symbolic green milk scene in The Last Jedi. Damn. Whoa. Ryan Johnson has created what I would can only describe as absolute poetry with this. Um, so so <laughs> oh, let's go let's go backwards a little bit and think a little bit about about the history and the lore of Star Wars. So throughout the history, we have two well, I guess you could say three colors, but I'm going to focus on two colors, green and blue. And though many people would argue that actually red is the color of evil, I'm going to contend, and I'm going to provide a lot of evidence here, why green. Green is actually the color of evil. And 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 when Luke drinks that green milk in The Last Jedi, he's, he's, he's demonstrating that he's fully turned to the green side of the Force. And he's no longer on the blue side of the force, and he is he's completely transformed. So I, I can't take credit for this, by the way. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, it's a video by Shasafras Productions on YouTube. Super funny. Anyway, here we go. But oh, we're moving on. We're moving on. So 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 Luke at the beginning, innocent kid, right? Gets a blue lightsaber. He's training with Ben, who also throughout his entire uh, you know Jedi career, except for one time he wielded his master lightsaber, but he had, he had a blue lightsaber. All of his lightsabers were blue. He's on the blue side. Uh, Qui Gon's a bit of a questionable Jedi. He had a green lightsaber. Big surprise. So so we got we got Ben Ben Kenobi. He's training Luke. He's got a blue lightsaber. He's training him to help out people. He's in the rebellion. Star Wars 4 happens. Great. Awesome. Star Wars 5. He's a blue Jedi. He's got his blue lightsaber. He's doing heroic things. He finally confronts his father and is faced with a little bit of the dark side for arguably the first time. And what happens? What happens to him as a character 
and actually as a human being. He loses his hand. And what's that hand clutching? His blue lightsaber. And in that moment, he lost a piece of the blue side that he had been clutching to for so long. And it was actually just lopped off because George Lucas does not like human uh, appendages. So in that (laughs) moment, he goes from being the lovable, like, well, blue Jedi that we all know and love to somewhat of a greener, a greener tone, if you will. And the next time we see him, or I guess in the next film, when we see him, he doesn't have a lightsaber. And it was really, a really great uh, thematic and... um, a really great thematic decision, I think, to not reveal the color of his lightsaber at the beginning of the next movie. And if you look at really old posters, you actually can't really tell what color his lightsaber is, which I think is really genius. So so he doesn't have his lightsaber at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, and that's because we don't really know. But the symbolism is there because he is dressing in black now because he's he's taken a darker tone. He's moved on from his childish blue ways, and he's on to the uh, the morally ambiguous green side. And and he will kill people in this scene, and 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 Jabba's sail barge is of course what I'm talking about. And when he finally gets his lightsaber from R2D2, it is green, and he'll ignite it and proceed to slay a bunch of guys who are just doing their job, just and, just murdering guys, minding their own business. And 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 it's 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 his character arc. And then um, of course we see him move down darker paths, and he's wearing black the entire movie, of course. Uh, and even the camo is green, which is a little bit of like, eh, but you know, uh, later on when he goes to Endor as well, of course, what I'm referring to there. So, so we got, we got green Luke Skywalker and that's, that's just, that's just the original trilogy. And then we get to, we get to the last Jedi and, oh, of course he, he faces his father, fights the emperor. And you see a lot of his green side come out during that fight. He's very angry. Uh, he's using his rage, all that good stuff. So we've got a fully transformed Luke to the green side. And oh, of course, the milk. And in A New Hope, Luke does not get his own blue milk. Aunt Beru gets it for him. And just like how Luke's blue lightsaber wasn't even his in the beginning, it was given to him by Obi-Wan. So so all that blueness was actually thrust upon him. He didn't choose it, and it wasn't his destiny. So all all the blue that we see in the original movies, it wasn't his. And we see that in, in for, come to fruition when we get to Return of the Jedi. And so then we get to The Last Jedi, where we where we really get to see what the green side has done for Luke. Oh my goodness, I keep skipping over things. Of course, his his transformation continues. Sorry, this is back at Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and, and he meets somebody. He meets somebody in Empire Strikes Back who, rather than training him in the blue side of the Force, actually gives him some training on the green side. And of course, this is the little green goblin we know as Yoda. And he is the literal embodiment of the green side. He lives in a little hut by himself. Uh, he's isolated and he gives Luke some green side training. Now, last Jedi. So that's, that's all we know about Luke's green side progression. Um, and then now we get to the last Jedi and he is, he's, he, we've, we've built him up, you know, he's this hero. We're excited. We found him finally. Thank God. He's going to save everybody, destroy Kylo, overthrow the first order. It's going to be awesome. And what happens when Ray hands him his blue lightsaber? He casts it aside immediately, without a second thought. And Ray is left thinking, all these things I've been taught, that Luke is this hero and we need to find him and he's the great blue side man we all know and love. Of course, that that's just that's just nonsense. He's not who he used to be. And and throughout the scenes with Ray, excuse me, Ray and Luke, when uh, Ray is trying to get him to train him. 
between her and it it's just not happening and it all it all comes to a head when when Luke uh when Luke goes to that space walrus on the side of the cliff and actually milks milks the you know the the sacks there and and gets his himself a good juicy mouthful of that green milk which is really like it's so it's such a fast scene and if you don't stop to think about it you just can't appreciate the time and thought that went into the script and direction just every everything that Ryan Johnson did with that movie I think is really summed up very nicely in that one uh, small moment and it really even even though Skywalker dies in that movie I think that is actually the completion of his arc is that moment where he, he gets himself a nice cold glass and just feasts on that green milk that he's learned is the true the true way said well um <clears throat> Jensen yeah I have another theory okay. um supported by the by the filmmakers, the special effects crew, on mm. a Return of a Jedi. Mm. Um, they couldn't figure out how to make a blue lightsaber pop out against the blue sky of Tatooine. And that's or, it. I think there's a real I think I think there's a real deeper uh, film film meaning. I mean you look at the blue milk, it's 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 really you can't you can't argue it. You really can't. Um, when you look at all the evidence all all laid out in front of you as I've just mm-hmm. done. I just don't think there's any good argument against the green side theory. Yeah. Can you tell me about the purple side of the force with Mace Windu's lightsaber? Uh, well, I think I'll put it this way. I think if Lando Calrissian was a Jedi, he would also have a purple lightsaber. And I think that's all we need to know. <laughs> so are you saying it involves a person being black? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Wait, I did not say that at all. You I... said that. <laughs> I'm I'm just saying, what's the what what makes one on the purple side of the force? I think that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> so so I'm so I'm just thinking, you know, in in terms of like archetypes here, Aunt Beru is the classic archetype of the surrogate mother, right? right. She's not the real mom, taking the place of the mom, and is also the bearer of the blue milk. As Padme was. As Padme. Exactly. And so to be the the bearer of the blue milk Mm. is a form of both sort of surrogacy in that it's a lie, right? Like she's, she, she doesn't really love Anakin. Padme doesn't love Anakin. Obviously she loves uh, Liberty or something like, right? Like when Liberty dies, she gets really sad. Yeah. Right. Liberty was, was her, was um, her, her, her side hustle yeah and so to be the bearer of blue milk is to be a liar um to you know like aunt beru um doesn't want her her surrogate son um uh to have fun doesn't object when uncle owen keeps him home so blue milk is slavery and to be a bearer of blue milk is a bearer of slavery and indoctrination which padme obviously is on anakin prevents him from being his best self and Aunt Brew does the the same thing. So I, I just really think it's beautiful symbolism, beautiful parallelism here. Um, yeah, it's great. Are we yeah. saying Padme's a surrogate mother to Anakin, who yes, in the same yes. episode they yes, sleeping together. When she yes. meets him, he is 10 and she's like 15. And you're and not wrong there. Cougar. And 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 it mm. yes. And and he has a lot of mental issues we need to we can go on to a whole other so much PTSD. That. Yeah, but you're not really wrong. really I'll Anakin Anakin is <clears throat> a Star Wars uh, manifestation of Freud, basically. Yep. I buy that. Yeah. 
So that's, okay. that's where that comes from. Do you notice when, when Padme goes to Tatooine, um, she starts wearing tatooine clothes, not unlike Shmi, his mother. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Fascinating. Wow. 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 Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, let's bring this one home. <laughs> let's bring this one home. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that was a good May, May the 4th, um, 4th of fourth of may may the fourth be with you all um uh so for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast uh, i'm brevin let's try that again i didn't hear what you said steven you very much were not well he was trying to say that he has a rant oh rant i am so sorry (laughs) was i saying that yes i totally forgot i totally forgot all right uh sorry and now it's time for discuss the uh i I remember last episode we said that jensen was going to discuss the um uh the trailer in that this was a uh a vision that she was having we already oh we did hot takes already i don't Uh, know i don't i don't don't, don't know i don't know if i necessarily even think that anymore to be honest okay fair enough okay all right all right we'll we'll cut this all out um all right all right so uh moving on now to uh rants uh steven i believe you have a rant for us I can, and or I do. I do have a rant, and I can say that rant. And that rant is the burden that fans place on the, shall we call them post-quills, sequels, tre-quills, um, the, the seven, episode seven and eight. Um, and like, look, I, I will be the first to say that they were far from perfect movies. But the amount of hatred that the fans have generated towards them simply because they do not fit some kind of pre-canned expectation that, in my opinion, was completely impossible to uh, fulfill, is it, it strikes me as kind of something quite sad. Uh, again, I, I fully understand that there are plenty of valid critiques, and I could make some of these critiques on 7 and 8, um, and I think that there are places that they could improve, certainly. But if you compare the amount of hatred generated for episodes 1, 2, and 3, which I think objectively are just worse than 7 and 8, they didn't receive nearly as many. And I. I find it kind of sad that people are kind of preventing themselves from seriously enjoying these films as kind of wonderful returns to uh, the the Star Wars universe that we have all grown to uh, to know and love. And so, I suppose if I if I could say like enjoy them for what they are, and certainly that I don't want to stop anyone from offering some some criticism or what have you. That's perfectly uh, fine to do, but. Let's also calm down a little bit. I, I developed a bit of a guilty pleasure a few months ago watching uh, YouTube rants on uh, episode seven and eight just because they're so hilarious to watch. Uh, but there is something kind of sad about watching a bunch of people just get irrationally angry about these movies. So, guys, calm down. They're movies. Don't expect too much of them. Just enjoy being back in the Star Wars universe. I disavow everything Steven just said. Those movies are garbage. Uh, Sam, I believe you. <laughs> I do have a rant, yes. Um, it's kind of parallel to Steven's rant. I'm not necessarily going to challenge it, but I'm just going to bring up a concern that I have um, looking forward, and that's how is the legacy of Star Wars going to be remembered? Um, and I was th- thinking specifically in 10 to 15 years, um, when I'm hopefully in a position um, that my father was in when I was about six or seven, and he showed me A New Hope, and the sheer joy that watching that movie brought to me. It's still my favorite movie of all time. And I know that A New Hope is not the objectively best Star Wars movie. Almost no critics would consider it to, to be that that amazing. But to me, it is my favorite movie. And it's because of that experience of watching it. And while I'm trying to enjoy the new prequels or the new sequels as they are, and I actually did enjoy Force Awakens because it 
almost brought back that similar feel in a couple moments. I do wonder how we're going to hold on to that in the future with Disney introducing Disney Plus with all the different TV shows that are going to be made in the next 15 years or so. Um, Will that change the movie experience of watching Star Wars? Will the Star Wars experience become something more like um, Marvel, where there's just an immense amount of immense amount of content out there or something like Harry Potter, which is while also a good book and film series, um, just a very different experience to watch. So I guess it's, it's not really a rant. It's more of a concern is how's Disney going to handle this? Um, and are they actually going to keep with the Star Wars spirit that made them good in the first place? All right. Uh, Jensen, your rant. My rant. Hmm. Let's see. Didn't have one. Actually, the Mandalorian thing, maybe. Uh, okay, it's not so much of a rant. I can talk. Brevin, your rant, Jensen. All right, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Take time to find the rant. <laughs> uh, for my rant, I would just like to say that, despite how uh, maligned they are, the prequel movies are, in fact, maybe some of the best Star Wars movies, and provide us many of the most iconic scenes that we think of. When we think of Star Wars music, we think of the opening crawl theme, obviously. But the second one that we think of is Duel of the Fates, um, or some of those other scores uh, in which we witnessed the actually dramatic lightsaber battles that the that the original trilogy teased but never fully delivered on. I mean, who can forget Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan versus Darth Maul, or Anakin versus Obi-Wan, an example of probably one of the best 1v1 fight scenes that's ever been created. Um, And we rip on the prequels a lot for the walking and talking, talking and walking, walking and talking. That happens, you know, for a good 45 minutes out of a one hour, 45 runtime, which is very fair. Um, But those movies, despite all of their mistakes, despite, um, uh, despite Lucas's (laughs) making Palpatine into Nixon and blah, blah, blah. Like, Despite all the objections, they are still an absolute core of our cultural mythology, of our cultural archetypes, of um, what we know um, as a central storytelling and what a story should look like. Um, so the prequels are underrated, um, and the, uh, the prequel memes, of course, um, is a genre that should never die. Uh, Jensen, do you have a rant now? I do now have a rant. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go into more of a uh, I'm gonna call it a positive rant here. And uh, I am I am all aboard the hype train for the Mandalorian TV series coming out for Disney Plus here in uh, comes out November 12th. And there's a few reasons for that. One is the trailer looks absolutely insane, uh, and the the clips they showed you can find them on YouTube. They're from the uh, Star Wars Celebration in Chicago just just a few weeks ago uh, are absolutely nuts. IG-88 is there, and he's spinning around shooting stuff. Uh, basically, it just it looks like uh, everything we would ever want from a story about a lone a lone gunslinger. It's a it's a Star Wars western, and it's going to be phenomenal. The it looks like they're taking the kind of direction of uh, like like Rogue One did, where they it's it's very much boots on the ground. You're not looking at it from the kind of ideological views of the Jedi or any sort of uh, like moral higher power that comes from the rebellion or any of that plot. Uh, but it's 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 the guy dealing with the Empire and he's looking out he's looking out for himself and he's looking out for I'm presuming he's going to have probably a squad that he works with at some point. And 
I'm just looking, I'm looking at the list of directors and, and writers for this show right now. And like the names on this list are so good. The The chief writer is John Favreau, who's like, everyone knows from Marvel. He plays uh, Happy in, in, the, in the Iron Man films. And he, he's done a lot of work on all of those movies and that universe in general. Uh, Dave Filoni is another name as a director and producer. And he, of course, is like the pioneer behind the Clone Wars series and just bringing a lot. He's, he's like, the, a driving force between bringing a lot of things into canon uh, that otherwise wouldn't be with regards like that he brought into the Clone Wars show, uh, which was just, I don't know, really, uh, he's just, he's the man, honestly. And then Bryce Dallas Howard, another great director, daughter of uh, Ron Howard, who's another good, talented, uh, all-time, one of the greats. And then Taika Waititi, which makes me very curious because he, of course, directed Thor Ragnarok, which was a thrilling movie, but an absolute comedy, so... I'm sure we're going to get a wide, wide range of uh, of themes and 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 across the episodes. It's just going to be it's going to be it's going to be a ride. So I am very much looking forward to that show, and uh, I would like to invite all of you to hop aboard the hype train with me because I think it's going to be it's going to be great. Choo choo. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's no, an electric I'm... train. Okay, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 very excited. For, uh... Uh, the Mandalorian, because I think it has potential to be sort of, I mean, because the original trilogy were very much a combo of, you know, space opera plus uh, Western, um, yeah. like many other good shows have been, um, such as uh, Cowboy Bebop. Um, but but with Bebop, it's a great show. If you haven't watched it, Sam, stop laughing. Um, what? I, have not, I haven't seen it. It's a great show. Ooh, um, but Firefly, yes, I'm basically hoping for Star for Firefly, but in the Star Wars universe, that would be excellent. Ooh, that would be excellent. Like I you just... know, Outer Rim, Mandalorian. He's a gunslinger. He gets a motley crew. It'll be great. I just don't like the idea of having to subscribe to yet another set of channels, especially Disney. Like I like the fact that Disney can pump it's a ton like of money into the Star bucks. Wars franchise, but at the same time. I really am resisting as much as possible the the lure that they are they are setting out. They're just trying There's to kill other... Netflix. They're just trying to kill Netflix. That's what's They're, happening. They might succeed. Disney Plus is looking real good. Yes, yeah. it is. Because when you own Marvel and, and Star Wars and you have an infinite amount of money to make content, like Netflix, Netflix was already originals, shooting itself in the foot pretty Netflix hard with cutting a lot of can't, stuff. Can't compete. Yeah, it really can't. So I'm no. I'm what's intrigued. What's going to happen is I, this is a prediction that i'm just kind of pulling out of nowhere but um what if amazon just bought netflix so i could see it happening um or google i know google's been looking to get in the oh, game for a long that would be time. interesting hmm. apparently they like hired a bunch of writers i was talking with one of my uh, uh friends he's a financial analyst and apparently they hired a bunch of writers gave them like a billion dollars which just like go write a bunch of stuff come back to us in a few years and i think wow. a few years oh. is up and so they're starting to try to produce stuff with um what is it youtube red YouTube Plus, mm-hmm. YouTube something mm-hmm. or other. Um, yeah. So Google's looking to get in the game as well, although they're a little bit late. And so we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's a good ending point for uh, future discussion um, in the future. Uh, but let's let's end this here uh, with a final. Um, I'd like everyone to respond. Um, May the fourth be with you. With your spirit. spirit. Your spirit. And with your force ghost. Um, all right. So for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm Jens. And we will see you next time. The force be with you. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Star Wars. 